0: convincing story that maps to reality and that's why the central narrative is falling apart right now in the United States
1: people
2: should
0: not be walking around with must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is you are American while elections are sometimes messy this was a secure election The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance and it's up to us to finish the job I tell you what we are in a truth emergency right now this is the end game. It's Wednesday, March 8th, 2023, the 777th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at imyourmoderator.substack.com. the concept of limited hangouts where a certain amount of information is released to cover up and distract from the far more damaging information that's not being released. This is a long time espionage tactic, a PR tactic, a media communications tactic, and it has worked very well over the course of our history. We have a commission. About the JFK assassination, a commission on Watergate, a commission on 9-11. We have a Mueller investigation and the information that these commissions, these investigations produce never really gets to the full truth of what really happened. And we see this with certain whistleblowers. We had Francis Hogan, the social media, I think, Facebook whistleblower a year or two ago, and she came out and talked about how social media was very bad for young girls and it was increasing rates of depression and suicide and loneliness and bad self-image. And that was a big deal in the news for a couple of days. CBS had the exclusive, as all real whistleblowers do. And all that happened was we learned a bunch of things that most people already knew, things that had been widely reported for years. They'll make a big deal of certain things, certain damning facts that would normally harm their narrative, but they've waited long enough. People have dealt with the effects of what the event actually was, and they care for a few days, and then they move on. And they understand that the social media companies are very bad, but they keep using them and their platforms in all the same ways that they were before. The limited hangout kind of releases some of the narrative pressure. People feel like they've gotten a little win and then they move on. And people in our community have gotten really good at spotting these things. And that's a result of being constantly ahead of any individual narrative that is being talked about kind of in the public consciousness. People are currently aware of a certain set of things and discussing those things. And when the media cycle moves on, those people move on, having incorporated maybe a little bit of new knowledge, but mostly a bunch of stuff that still supports the central narrative and still supports the regime agenda. Every now and then, some of those facts begin to creep in from outside the central narrative, the media has to respond to those things. Sometimes the response works. People go back to sleep and sometimes it doesn't. People further wake up and understand what the regime is doing and understand that they've been lied to by the media. And that, of course, is the desired outcome. So for however many people that works on, that is progress for us. And what I'm saying, what I was saying yesterday in the podcast and what I'm going to continue with today is the idea that limited hangouts, when they're coming from our side and when the information that's being relayed is truly damning, it's truly destructive of the central narrative, then we are actually making progress with these partial stories. It's not satisfying. In fact, it's very frustrating. We want people to be able to get all the way to the end and understand what is really happening to them. We understand that there are levels of proof of what we can prove that are irrefutable and undeniable and could easily make all of these misunderstandings simply go away if they achieve that sort of public consciousness. And naturally, we want to push toward that point as fast as we can again I'm not a particularly patient person, and you guys have heard the podcast, many of you, for over two years, almost three years now, and throughout a lot of that time, you've heard that frustration in me. Why can't this full story get out? People deserve to know. People ultimately, I believe, good people want to know. They want to know the truth. They are hesitant to know the truth. They are hesitant to accept the truth. Because the truth for them is very scary. They've built their lives around these lies. Their lives are very successful within the false reality. They might not look so successful in the empirical observable reality, which they are eventually going to have to face. The faster they face that, the faster they can adjust and move forward. And I want to reach that point, not only for the good it provides our side and the validation for all of. What many of us have gone through over the years, whether it's losing our jobs or losing our relationships because of these disagreements or even losing our loved ones from medical malpractice or as a result of having taken the vaccines, in some way, we all want that suffering to end. And naturally, we want the political advancement so that the country can be saved and preserved. But I can speak for myself, and I'm guessing many of you, we also want that for their own sake, so that these people stop driving themselves into ruin on behalf of a regime they don't know, they don't understand, and they would never ultimately want to support, despite the fact that they are doing it out of their own ignorance. But if you accept that all of this is happening for a purpose and that the purpose is to restore truth and justice and the Constitution in America without causing a civil war, then the most peaceful and effective way to do that is by bringing people along and allowing them to wake up on their own time to the extent possible. And so to reach that goal, we can't go all the way from the point we're at now to the end of the story because that presents a whole new set of risks. So what we have is a series of limited hangouts by the other side in order to cover up far worse facts about what they have been doing. And those are defensive positions for them. Those are fallback positions for them. They are in retreat when they're doing that and trying to get people to ignore the issue altogether or just take enough time so that whenever people do finally arrive at the truth, it's too late for them to do anything about it. And they probably also won't care that much by then because they have adjusted to the new reality. I'm suggesting that a process similar to the limited hangout being executed by the people on our side of this information war can actually be really effective in terms of bringing people along at the pace necessary to wake them up in a peaceful way. And maybe another way to look at that is by comparing what disclosure looks like to us rather than to them. We think of disclosure as now we have all the facts. Let's go through all this, figure out what's really in here and make sure all of this gets out to the public so that they can know what's actually happened. We want that WikiLeaks style dump, the DNC emails, Hillary emails. We want the FOIAs. We want the source documents. We want all the security footage so that we can go through and see what's what. But that's not what disclosure looks like to them. Disclosure to them looks like big headlines in the New York Times and the Washington Post and big stories on cable news and a whole lot of chatter on social media channels because they're not forming beliefs in response to facts. They are forming beliefs in response to incentives that surround the support of the central narrative they will change their positions whenever they are incentivized to do so and always in accordance with the central narrative. And obviously, over time, we hope people move away from that behavior and begin to form their beliefs independently based on the facts of events and their own ability to discern and to judge and to understand And to ultimately have confidence in themselves to figure out what's actually important. And so what I suggested on the podcast yesterday was that perhaps these narrative pauses, if you look at them as waypoints on the road to that final end point, which is the full disclosure and full understanding. If we can look at these narrative pauses simply as waypoints where we allow everyone who is well behind us to catch up a little bit. Then they become immediately less frustrating and immediately make more sense in the overall information operation that we are witnessing play out day by day. One thing I'm not sure I mentioned yesterday, but meant to either way, is that I am of the belief that the Twitter files are a prepackaged intelligence product. I don't believe that Elon Musk has opened up all of Twitter's files to this small set of mostly regime and leftist journalists who are then analyzing all the information for themselves and then picking out which stories to tell. And I think that that's almost to the point of being obviously true since Each and every one of the Twitter files releases so far has touched directly on issues everyone was already aware of. And I'm not saying that everyone was aware in the sense that they understood the issue as we understand it and that they know what the issue actually means in a broader sense. I'm just saying that they have some awareness of Russian collusion and Russian bot farms. And so the Twitter files blowing up the reality of that is effective because they know that they were misled. They know that they were lied to. Likewise, everybody has an understanding of libs of TikTok and what that account has been showing to people and exposing and the fact that it's been attacked over and over and over again. So when there are stories concerning the Libs of TikTok accounts in the Twitter files. People have some base of knowledge to understand what's being done to that particular account, which allows them to understand that Twitter and the government working together do have the power to censor in exactly this way. And they are using the censorship for very particular things. Obviously, the same with the Hunter Biden laptop and the censorship of Donald Trump, anything surrounding j Six. And all of that, just the same. I don't believe that Kevin McCarthy took 40,000 hours of security footage and handed it over to Tucker Carlson's team. And now they are going through all of that footage to tell these particular stories that they're telling. These are all stories that we had some background on. Brian Sicknick bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher. Well, we've known that's not true for the entire time, but a lot of people just found that out this week. Ray Epps, Fed, or at least Fed involved, actually instigating at the Capitol. Go in. We need to go into the building. We need to go into the building. That was Ray Epps out there on the streets the night of January 5th. We have video of him on January 6th, leading people in, encouraging them to go in. People didn't know that. The New York Times has protected him. They did that puff piece, that hilarious article from the end of last summer. And of course, everyone knows the QAnon shaman. These are the stories that Tucker decided to tell on Monday night. They all have some background public awareness over the course of the last two years. Everybody pretty much understands that these are issues of focus regardless of what they believe about them right now. And so I don't look at these things as disclosures to a particular set of journalists who then go through all the material and figure out what's important to bring the public. That is not what I see when it comes to any of this stuff. Is it possible that I'm wrong about that? Of course it is. I just really don't think so because I have no reason to believe that Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger and Barry Weiss and Lee Fang, all of these people, have been scouring all of Twitter's files and emails to bring us stories that we kind of already knew about. And the same applies to Tucker Carlson. And if I'm right about that, that means that all of this is a highly coordinated and well-orchestrated Information operation designed to wake the public up along a certain timeline. So last night, Tucker didn't produce a lot of new footage. He went through an interview with the Capitol Police officer. And a lot of people have theorized that Murdoch shut the whole thing down and didn't let Tucker go with another night of these stories. That is entirely possible. It's also possible that yesterday was designed to be a fake out so that the enemy would expend more ammunition. And that's exactly what they did last night in order to disrupt Tucker's disclosure of further January 6th stuff. The media put out a message from the Dominion filings from all that discovery that they talked about a couple of weeks ago, talking about how Tucker actually hates Donald Trump. Because they think that that will be devastating to the people watching Tucker as he discloses all of this January 6th stuff. They don't understand that none of us actually care what Fox News says. I have a level of appreciation for Tucker Carlson. I think it's possible that he is doing exactly what he's supposed to do, but that remains to be seen. He certainly hasn't gone hard after election fraud for the past two years. And that's my litmus test. So if I'm going to come down on one side or the other and say, this is what I think is true. Well, I think Tucker's probably done the country a disservice by not going after that stuff. Unless this other thing is true. If the other thing is true and all of this information is being put out on a timeline and it's all designed to achieve that outcome at the end, despite the frustrations along the way. Well, then Tucker's not a bad guy. But either way, we don't care what Fox News hosts think about Donald Trump or about us, because none of that has anything to do with whether or not the election was actually stolen, whether or not the very violent insurrection was just the American Reichstag fire. It doesn't matter how many times Fox News hosts push the vaccine and the deadliness of COVID, Because Fox News hosts' opinions don't change the underlying realities. The media outlets breaking this big story about how Tucker hates Trump are not breaking anything. They've had that information. They waited to use it until right now because they wanted it to create maximum chaos and maximum damage. And it didn't work because Tucker Carlson didn't release new stuff last night. And because we don't care if Tucker releases more tonight, no one's going to be thinking about how some text message after being decontextualized and inserted into a lawsuit says Tucker hates Trump, particularly not when they were just together a couple of months ago on Trump's golf course, laughing and having a great time together. What was Tucker doing there if he hates Trump? So they tried that and then they had a bunch of rhino senators walk out and tell America what they think, how irresponsible it is for Tucker Carlson to have released this information. So let's hear from Mitch and from Mitt.
2: With regard to the uh, presentation on Fox News last night, I want to associate myself entirely with the opinion of the chief of the capitol police about what happened on january 6th my uh, concern is how it was depicted which is a different issue clearly the chief of the capitol police in my view correctly describes what most of us witnessed firsthand on january 6th So that's my reaction to it. Um, It was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at the Capitol thinks.
0: So Mitch is holding up a letter from the chief of the Capitol Police And he's going to associate himself with that opinion, that viewpoint. That's the authoritative source for Mitch. This guy knows what happened better than anyone. He has the title of chief of the Capitol Police. So he's in the position that would know the best out of anyone anywhere ever. What's being said is true because he said it. And it's irresponsible for Tucker and for Fox News to present a viewpoint and to present evidence that conflicts with that perspective. He's upset that the story is at variance with the official story. And Mitch apparently doesn't care that most Republicans disagree with him and know exactly what happened because they've spent the last two years finding out what happened rather than just accepting word from that authoritative source. Turns out that Mitt doesn't care what Republican voters think either. It's really sad to see Tucker Carlson uh, go off the rails that bad. Uh, the American people saw what happened on January 6th. They've seen uh, the, the people that got injured. They saw the damage to the building. Uh, you, you, you can't hide the truth uh, uh, by selectively picking a few minutes out of tapes and saying this is what went on. It's, it's so absurd. It's, it's, it's a nonsense. Clearly placating the base of my party is, is not the right way forward for the Republican Party or for the country. The American people have seen it with their own eyes and you can't hide the truth by selectively picking out minutes of the tape and suggesting that's what went on. Well, that is exactly what the media and the January 6th committee have done for over two years now. You can't hide the truth by doing that. Mitt's actually 100% right about that He just happens to be right about that within the false reality. His view represents a total inversion within the false reality. He is talking about what the January 6th committee did and what the media has done, and he's got it all reversed. They cannot hide the truth. The truth is eventually going to come out. And now we see the truth beginning to come out and Mitt's suggesting it's the opposite. But the crazy part is what he said at the end he doesn't believe that placating the Republican base is the right way for the Republican Party to move forward. He's talking about Republican voters. He's saying it doesn't matter what Republican voters think about this. We're still going to support the official story in the central narrative about January 6th, no matter what evidence comes out. And Tucker's Monday show already broke down three pillars of the January 6th story. It has made it clear that each and every one of those small stories as part of the larger story are lies. And each time you see a part of the official story collapse and drop away, the bigger story is weakened. And when you have that happen enough times, the bigger story collapses and goes away itself. That's what we see happening now with the COVID narrative, the masks, the lockdowns, the origins of the virus, the vaccine necessity and the vaccine safety and effectiveness. All of that is collapsing and going away. Is it totally gone? No. But the official story within the central narrative is completely broken and it is irretrievable. There are still people that are going to believe it. There are still people that are going to believe all this stuff to the end. And if you are surrounded by those people, you may not be able to see progress. And I understand that. It's very sad. It's very frustrating. But you cannot then assume that the reaction of the people around you is representative of the reactions of everybody. And I don't mean to sound insensitive. I know that people have important relationships in their life and they feel like if I don't have these relationships with my friends or my family, then maybe life's not worth living. Maybe there's no issue that's worth losing these people. But the truth is, those people don't feel the same way about you because you're already understanding and actually telling us that if you tell these people the truth about all these things, they're not going to maintain their relationships with you. So first, I'd suggest that maybe that's not the sort of relationship you need to curtail your behavior in order to preserve. It's also possible that you're not giving these people enough credit, and that would be a very sad judgment to make. You think that these people can't handle being told the truth, so you don't tell them the truth in order to preserve your relationship. And then you find two years later, they still don't know the truth. Your relationship with them is still in the same tenuous status it's been in for the last couple of years. Your entire relationship revolves around you not telling these people the truth so they won't reject you. And then in order to not face that rejection, you decide to never tell them the truth. And then you wonder why they haven't figured out the truth yet. So you can't let some hopefully redeemable communists in your inner circle dictate your ability to see what's happening in society right now as people wake up it is working we are not in the same position we were in two years ago so many more people understand now that we were right the whole time and that matters a hell of a lot Mitt Romney in his cluelessness has no idea that this is going on. He thinks it's some fringe portion of the Republican base who are conspiracy theorists and crazy people. They're in the Trump cult. That's what Mitt Romney is communicating right now to Republican voters so that he can help preserve the establishment. But it's not just the Republican base. It's an overwhelming majority of the Republican Party. Is the Republican establishment now telling establishment Republican voters that they can't trust Fox News? I mean, if that's what they want to go with, that's A-OK with me. Hey, Republican establishment voters, stop watching Fox News. I know you're not going to turn to CNN or MSNBC. You probably don't have a lot of respect for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Atlantic or Politico or Salon. So get rid of Fox News. Come on over and check out what we're doing at Badlands. Go on over and check out what they're doing at the War Room. Check out Revolver. Check out American Greatness. Check out Just the News. And you will be much, much smarter in no time. But Mitt Romney doesn't care about Republican voters. He just said that. You need to take that lesson and own it. That's what the entire Republican establishment thinks. They do not care about what their own voters think. So what does that tell you about what they see as their priority in office? What do you think they think their job is? They think their job is convincing us that what they're going to do anyway in all of their illegitimacy is actually best for us and what we want. They are essentially reading us advertisements of the global regime, hoping that we will buy their product. That's not how it's supposed to work. They're supposed to be an office representing our interests. And it's important that we never forget this. I've talked about it countless times on the show. And here's a clip from Tucker last night where you'll hear Tucker say some things i've been saying on this show for a very long time and no i'm not saying i was the first person to ever observe this but i am saying it's worth noting that this has now broken into the central narrative
1: and from this we
0: learn two things one
1: you're getting close to what they really care about and you have to ask yourself why why is it so important that they would degrade themselves by telling such obvious lies and calling for censorship. Why? What are they trying to protect? That might be worth exploring, and we plan to. And the second thing that we learned from this is that they're on the same side. The Senate Majority Leader joins the Senate Minority Leader. Tom Tillis, Mitt Romney. (laughs) They're all on the same side. So it's actually not about left and right. It's not about Republican and Democrat. Here you have people with shared interests, the open borders people, the people <laughs> the people like Mitch McConnell, who are living in splendor on Chinese money, the people who, underneath it all, have everything in common, are all aligned against everyone else. And that would include almost all news organizations in this country as well. And so if you're watching this, it might be kind of interesting to keep a list. Because one thing we learned today is that They're all in agreement with each other. They kind of outed themselves. They sort of showed their membership cards and whatever club this is to the public. So keep a list. If you want to know who's actually aligned,
0: despite the illusion of partisanship, we found out today. And that's it. When that understanding reaches critical mass, the game is basically over. And we are seeing them align on issue after issue after issue always in support of the global regime and their agenda, always in opposition to the good of the people, the will of the people and the truth. They're all on the same side in protecting the regime from the sovereign nationalist movements around the world. By the way, the populist movements around the world, they are protecting the regime from that. And it is falling apart. They're protecting the regime from that with outright obvious lies. And the only reason any of it works and any of it survives is people's adherence to the central narrative and the incentives attached to it in the party of false decorum. If they go away from the central narrative, they will be exiled from the party of false decorum. They believe their friends, their relationships, their family members, Their jobs, their careers, everything is going to leave them, including their understanding of how the world works, and they are horrified of that. And somehow, they have not yet realized that they don't have a choice. Reality is coming either way. So it's possible that Tucker might come back tonight with more footage, tomorrow with more footage. It would be great if he did a month of just January 6th footage showing that the entire story was completely wrong. But I don't expect that. I expect that maybe we'll get one more day, two more days. Maybe we'll get to the end of the week. Kind of even doubt that. But in large part, I imagine we are going to take a narrative pause somewhere around here for a little while until the ball is advanced up the field again, whether it's in a few days, a few weeks, maybe even a couple of months. Eventually, this January 6th, very violent insurrection narrative is going to be completely collapsed and completely gone to the point where no one will believe it. And anyone professing belief of it in public is going to look very, very stupid and be very, very embarrassed. That will be the point at which, you know, the incentives are aligned against maintaining the official story. Once those incentives have shifted, reaching the narrative endpoint is inevitable. And if you've listened to the show for a long time, you know I often talk about this scenario as like a dinner party. It's you and nine other people, dinner party of 10 people. In May of 2020, when we were first getting all the pressure for the masks, we'd been locked down for a little bit. If you were at the dinner party saying that lockdowns are devastating and that masks don't work, You would probably have six or seven people there getting really, really angry and trying to convince you you're wrong and a bad person based on what they've seen on television. And you probably get one or two or maybe three people who aren't going to say anything at all. Well, now in March of 2023, if you're at a dinner party with 10 people and you say that lockdowns were devastating and masks never worked. You're going to have six or seven people who will vocally agree with you and shake their heads, like, Yeah, I can't believe I ever believed that. I can't believe other people ever believed that. And then there will be two there that still believe it and will not say anything. They'll be the silent ones now because there is absolutely no credit to be gained from speaking those opinions, except when you're with other people who believe it. If you understand that the people around you don't believe what you're about to say and you're in the party of false decorum, you're not going to say that thing that you believe. And when you've had that experience enough times, you're not going to say that thing ever again. You might even stop believing it, even if you will still insist that you were right to believe it at the time. That's how these things work. And we can see that phenomenon happening in real life about all of these narratives. It is not nearly as dangerous right now to say in a group of 10 at a dinner party that the election was obviously stolen as it was two years ago. The reason for that is that people's beliefs have shifted along this timeline to the point where they will no longer fight for those false beliefs. Or they might even come over and support the true beliefs and actually be happy to speak for them. Now, it didn't happen fast enough, but whatever the information operation was, whatever has played out over these two years, even if it's all just random and happenstance, it has still worked and it has still brought them to this point. So these gradual limited hangouts, these narrative pauses as we hit these waypoints along the road. To that endpoint, that's been effective. Now let's think about the Ukraine conversation in the same way. Think of all the things you weren't allowed to say a year ago. Couldn't talk about biolabs, couldn't talk about Nazis, anything other than full throated support for the comedic actor in Ukraine you were considered a Russian propagandist. You were repeating Russian propaganda. You were being anti-American. What we need to do is send armies, send weapons, tanks, whatever we need over there, as much money as they could ever possibly use. We need to do that because we need to protect Ukraine's sovereign borders. Almost no one believes any of that anymore. You will still find people who will say it and they'll argue it a little bit and they'll get upset when you tell them they're wrong. They want to hang on to that story. The TV told them that's what came down from the authoritative source. That's what we need to say. But the incentives have changed and people aren't taking all that seriously for saying that anymore. I imagine that I could be at a dinner party with the group of 10 in Los Angeles right now. And I know these people very, very well. I imagine I could be there. And prove to that table that Ukrainian Nazis are very, very real and that all of them have supported them. And I would not hesitate to say that in a group of 10 people because it's true. And I'm more than happy to defend it. And I'm more than happy to let time prove me correct. They can believe I'm wrong all they want. They can think I'm stupid and crazy and evil. I don't care at all. Especially about the opinions of the five or ten or maybe twenty percent of people who represent the last people on this entire earth to realize that the systems of power in this world do not exist to benefit and help them achieve the things they want in their lives. The one or two people at the dinner party won't speak up, and if they do, I can guarantee that they will leave the table in tears. Hey, I am what I am. But let's apply this narrative pausing idea to what's happening in Ukraine right now. And specifically regarding the Nord Stream pipeline. It's now been, what, nearly six months since the Nord Stream pipeline attack. And we've gotten little bits of information over that time. Each one reveals more of the story. And we're hitting these waypoints knowing that the end point, the ultimate truth of this situation, is not yet fully in view. We've had indications over this time from Russian sources, as well as others, that MI6 was involved. Russia claimed there was a text message from former British Prime Minister Liz Truss to Antony Blinken saying it's done about the Nord Stream attack. The Brits came over to visit in Washington and discuss all of that when that news came out. And Liz Truss had a very short term as Prime Minister of the UK. She's been replaced by Rishi Sunak. Then, a month or so ago, we had Seymour Hirsch report on the decision by the illegitimate Biden administration to blow up the pipeline, and we got a story about how that was executed, and people have disputed that story, but no one has successfully disproven it, and the reactions to that story suggest that Seymour Hersh was absolutely onto something, if not entirely correct, and now the New York Times has decided to tell us what really happened, so let's go through that a bit. This is from yesterday. Intelligence suggests pro-Ukrainian group sabotaged pipelines, U.S. officials say. New intelligence reviewed by U.S. officials suggests that a pro-Ukrainian group carried out the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines last year, a step toward determining responsibility for an act of sabotage that has confounded investigators on both sides of the Atlantic for months. Yes, so confusing. And now we've found out that it is a pro-Ukrainian group. Oh, really? So you're saying Ukraine did this? Oh, no, that couldn't be it. Of course, that couldn't be it. U.S. officials said they had no evidence President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine or his top lieutenants were involved in the operation or that the perpetrators were acting at the direction of any Ukrainian government officials. No evidence. Got it. So our intel agencies, our U.S. officials say they do not have any evidence that Volodymyr Zelensky had anything to do with the decision to attack the Nord Stream pipelines. They don't have evidence. They didn't say that he didn't do it. They just don't have any evidence that he did And the other thing is that they're not searching for evidence that he did, because if they had that sort of evidence, well, that would cause the whole thing to fall apart. That would be the end of Volodymyr Zelensky's image in the eyes of people in the West. Why were you attacking critical energy infrastructure that Germany depends on if Germany is your ally, comedic actor? And why Did everyone tell us that Russia attacked their own pipeline? Well, that would just be too confusing for anyone to have to get through. So we're just going to say it's pro-Ukrainian actors, but not related to the comedic actor. The brazen attack on the natural gas pipelines, which link Russia to Western Europe, fueled speculation about who was to blame from Moscow to Kiev and London to Washington. And it has remained one of the most consequential unsolved mysteries of Russia's year old war in Ukraine. You see that? It's Russia's war in Ukraine. Again, Russia's brutal invasion. This is one of the most consequential unsolved mysteries. And the mystery is going to remain unsolved because we know the answer and we're not going to tell you. So to you, it's an unsolved mystery. And so we will describe it as an unsolved mystery, even though, of course, U.S. officials know exactly what happened. U.S. officials said there was much they did not know (laughs) about the perpetrators and their affiliations. The review of newly collected intelligence suggests they were opponents of President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia, but does not specify the members of the group or who directed or paid for the operation. U.S. officials declined to disclose the nature of the intelligence, how it was obtained, or any details of the strength of the evidence it contains. They have said there are no firm conclusions about it, leaving open the possibility that the operation might have been conducted off the books by a proxy force with connections to the Ukrainian government or its security services. Some initial U.S. and European speculation centered on possible Russian culpability, especially given its prowess in undersea operations, though it is unclear what motivation the Kremlin would have in sabotaging the pipelines, given that they have been an important source of revenue and a means for Moscow to exert influence over Europe. One estimate put the cost of repairing the pipeline starting at about $500 million. U.S. officials say they have not found any evidence of involvement by the Russian government in the attack. Well, that's because there was no reason for anyone anywhere ever to believe that Russia might have been involved in attacking their own pipelines. That story was put out there as a possibility, just a possibility, so that everyone in the hate movement could immediately blame Russia for something that they obviously didn't do. And then that would distract from whoever actually did do it. And so now... Based on evidence that they can't describe information you're not allowed to hear, including where they got the intelligence in the first place, they've determined that it might be some pro-Ukraine group who just went ahead and decided to attack critical energy infrastructure on their own. And no one can figure out who they are, including American intelligence. Kind of reminds you of the balloon thing. Really? You guys are just this bad at your jobs? Oh, no, no, of course. You're lying to us. Yeah, it's always that, isn't it? One would think that such a major attack, something that would affect world events in a time of war, would be something that the United States, for instance, would want to pursue. We're sending all these weapons and all this money over to Ukraine. And then a pro-Ukrainian group has this big rogue attack and the U.S. government shrugs and says, "Ah, well, I guess it sort of sucks that happened too bad. I guess we'll never know. Officials who have reviewed the intelligence said they believed the saboteurs were most likely Ukrainian or Russian nationals or some combination of the two. U.S. officials said no American or British nationals were involved. The pipelines were ripped apart by deep sea explosions in September in what U.S. officials described at the time as an act of sabotage. European officials have publicly said they believe the operation that targeted Nord Stream was probably state sponsored, possibly because of the sophistication with which the perpetrators planted and detonated the explosives on the floor of the Baltic Sea without being detected. U.S. officials have not stated publicly that they believe the operation was sponsored by a state. The explosives were most likely planted with the help of experienced divers who did not appear to be working for military or intelligence services. U.S. officials who have reviewed the new intelligence said, well, that's amazing since they have no idea who these guys are. I guess they can only tell who they're not. But it is possible that the perpetrators received specialized government training in the past. Oh, That's so much better to know. Officials said there were still enormous gaps in what U.S. spy agencies and their European partners knew about what transpired, but officials said it might constitute the first significant lead to emerge from several closely guarded investigations, the conclusions of which could have profound implications for the coalition supporting Ukraine. Ah, hey, you don't say I wonder if that's why they've been covering it up for so long. Any suggestion of Ukrainian involvement, whether direct or indirect, could upset the delicate relationship between Ukraine and Germany, souring support among a German public that has swallowed high energy prices in the name of solidarity. You get that? That's how they sell it to Americans. German citizens are being forced to go broke to stay warm, but they're doing it gladly in the name of solidarity with Ukraine. You get it? So if the same thing happens here in America, if everybody goes broke in order to preserve the lifestyle they're accustomed to living, well, they're going to be doing so happily in solidarity with our brothers in Ukraine. U.S. officials who have been briefed on the intelligence are divided about how much weight to put on the new information. All of them spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss classified intelligence and matters of sensitive diplomacy. So great that they are always quick to run to the New York Times to give these stories about which they have to remain anonymous in order to preserve diplomacy. Now, hey, if I was the leader of another country and I was concerned about integrity in American diplomacy, I think what I would want is for those people to speak directly to me about what they know rather than to anonymously leak to regime news sources what they pretend to know but obviously don't really know and are obviously covering up. These leaks are already bad diplomacy. And knowing that, it becomes clear that they don't care about diplomacy. They care about shifting public sentiment in the central narrative. They want people to believe there's no way it was the U.S. There's no way it was the U.K. There's no way it was NATO. And there's no way that Volodymyr Zelensky had anything to do with this. But it was someone pro-Ukrainian. U.S. officials said the new intelligence reporting has increased their optimism that American spy agencies and their partners in Europe can find more information, which could allow them to reach a firm conclusion about the perpetrators. It is unclear how long that process will take. American officials recently discussed the intelligence with their European counterparts who have taken the lead in investigating the attack. A spokeswoman for the CIA declined to comment. A spokesman for the White House's National Security Council referred questions about the pipelines to the European authorities who have been conducting their own investigations. And the article goes on and on and on. So they can't tell you anything about the actual intelligence or how it was obtained. They can't tell you who did it. They can tell you who didn't do it. They can tell you that it was pro-Ukrainian actors, but they can also tell you that it definitely wasn't anyone to do with Volodymyr Zelensky. And it wasn't UK intelligence, wasn't the US, it wasn't NATO. All we know is that it was pro-Ukraine, so it wasn't Russia. They finally retreated to the position where it wasn't Russia. Now we're allowed to know, hey, it wasn't Russia that did that thing that Russia obviously didn't do. So, well, who could it have been? Now, if you think I'm gonna say Ukrainian Nazis, well, you're right. Because Ukrainian Nazis kind of fit that sweet spot, right? The media has already separated them completely from Volodymyr Zelensky. They say, well, okay, there are some sort of Nazis in the Ukrainian army, but Volodymyr Zelensky himself, you see, is Jewish, so they're not real Nazis, and also they're kind of separate from the thing that Zelensky's doing. Now, it's also true that the American, in quotes, CIA has been running those Nazis and training those Nazis for at least eight or nine years, according to media reports that people are pretty familiar with. But they've also been doing it the entire time since World War II over there. So Ukrainian Nazis have this special, special ability of being not technically Ukrainian, at least not Volodymyr Zelensky's Ukrainian and not being NATO and not being British intelligence and technically not being the CIA, even though the CIA does train and arm and fund and direct them. So who was it who attacked the Nord Stream pipelines? I guess it's just going to remain one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in the world. Here's how Seymour Hirsch himself responds to this latest reporting by the New York Times.
2: What? That can't be true. They can't be that stupid. Are they that stupid? Right, what do I care? I'm going to go look at the New York Times now. Oh, my God. Intelligence suggests Ukrainian. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. No, I haven't seen it. No, I, I, I can't comment on that stuff. What do I know? I've written a couple of other things about it. I'm going to write something next week again about it. And that's the way I do it.
0: So he's in the middle of an interview and hears about this new New York Times article. And that's his reaction. That is how utterly ridiculous it is what they're trying to do right now. It's pro-Ukrainian forces. It's just not any of, you know, the people that we've been saying are the good guys the whole time. It's not any of them. But they do like Ukraine. Hey, New York Times, just say it's the CIA. Just say all of it is the CIA and we can all go home. We can begin our new lives together once we all understand what the global regime is and what these intelligence services are and what they do. And it really is amazing. Terrorists in the Middle East, CIA. Drug cartels, CIA. Stolen elections to install puppet regimes in other countries around the world? CIA. Color revolutions to destabilize societies? CIA. Corruption and compromise of political leaders? (laughs) Ha! CIA again. Well, and the FBI. But you get the point. The regime is the regime is the regime. Kami's gonna Kami. Can't we all just be honest about what's happening? And let's see what else is happening in the world in regard to the regime and their collapsing domination of this planet. This is Reuters on Sunday. Syria mission worth the risk. Top U.S. general says after rare visit, the nearly eight year old U.S. deployment to Syria to combat the Islamic State is still worth the risk. The top U.S. military officers said on Saturday after a rare unannounced visit to a dusty base in the country's northeast to meet U.S. troops. Hey, eight year old U.S. deployment to Syria. How come no one ever talks about that? Army General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, flew to Syria to assess efforts to prevent a resurgence of the militant group and review safeguards for American forces against attacks, including from drones, flown by Iran backed militia. While the Islamic State is a shadow of the group that ruled over a third of Syria and Iraq in a caliphate declared in 2014, hundreds of fighters are still camped in desolate areas where neither the U.S.-led coalition nor the Syrian army with support from Russia and Iranian backed militias exert full control. Thousands of other Islamic State fighters are in detention facilities guarded by Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic forces, America's key ally in the country. Ah, so America has allies in Syria, but they're not Russia and Iran, and they're not the Syrian army. So, man, what are we doing over there? Are we fighting another proxy war against Russia and Iran in Syria? American officials say that the Islamic State could still regenerate into a major threat. Isn't that amazing? They started under Obama and they could regenerate into a threat under the fake President Joe Biden. How does that happen? But the mission, which former President Donald Trump nearly ended in 2018 before softening his withdrawal plans, is a remnant of the larger global war against terrorism That had once included the war in Afghanistan and a far larger U.S. military deployment to Iraq. And so you see, if it's part of that larger war against terrorism, then that means we're still over there for a good reason. This effort is legitimate in Syria, even though they never talk about it with the American people and the American people never said, hey, let's go have a war in Syria asked by reporters traveling with him if he believed the Syria deployment of roughly 900 U.S. troops to Syria was worth the risk. Milley tied the mission to the security of the United States and its allies, saying, if you think that that's important, then the answer is yes. I happen to think that's important, Milley said. And by the way, I am reading over an article that absolutely no one has proofread. This is absolutely terrible writing in Reuters, just repeating words, leaving words out, words all out of order. I'm just correcting all that on the fly. This is really awful, though, and it should be obvious that Milley is lying. He might as well have just said, well, hey, if you're someone who cares about the future of tiny children, then you will support our war in Syria. It's just a total non sequitur what he's saying. So I think that an enduring defeat of ISIS and continuing to support our friends and allies in the region, I think those are important tasks that can be done. The mission carries risks. Four U.S. troops were wounded during a helicopter raid last month when an Islamic State leader triggered an explosion. Oh, okay. Last month, the U.S. military shot down an Iranian-made drone in Syria that was attempting to conduct reconnaissance on a patrol base in northeastern Syria. Three drones targeted a U.S. base in January in Syria's Al-Tanf region. The U.S. military said two of the drones were shot down while the remaining drone hit the compound, injuring two members of the Syrian Free Army Forces. U.S. officials believe drone and rocket attacks are being directed by Iran-backed militia, a reminder of the complex geopolitics of Syria, where Syrian President Bashar al-Assad counts on support from Iran and Russia and sees U.S. troops as occupiers. And yeah, that's because that's what they're doing. Imagine we had a thousand Syrian forces just hanging out in Salt Lake City. What sort of president would be okay with that? Oh, it's the sort who's part of the global regime, because, of course, Justin Trudeau has Chinese troops in Canada, doesn't care. And naturally, Joe Biden is allowing the Mexican cartels to conduct a slave trade across our southern border. So he probably wouldn't care either. America's NATO ally, Turkey, has also threatened a broad offensive in Syria that would threaten the U.S. military's Syrian Kurdish partners, who Ankara views as terrorists So Turkey is a NATO ally, but it doesn't sound like they are actually a strategic ally. So really, all that means is Turkey is part of NATO. NATO is collapsing. So why would Turkey do what NATO says? And of course, they're not. But Reuters also can't admit that two NATO allies are working in direct opposition in Syria. U.S. Army Major General Matthew McFarlane, who commands the U.S.-led coalition against Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, described attacks against U.S. forces as a distraction from our main mission. McFarlane cited progress against the Islamic State, including through the reduction in the numbers of internally displaced people at refugee camps, a pool of vulnerable people who could be recruited by the Islamic State. So you see the whole refugee thing that's happening, that migration is happening so that we don't create more terrorists. You get it? Oh, well, hopefully they'll be able to escape the climate change down there. Remember that whole thing? All of the Syrian refugees, that was all climate change. When they were all going to Europe and destabilizing Europe, and you were called racist if you noticed that, (laughs) all climate change. It had nothing to do with this whole Syrian effort that's been going on for 10 years. The Al Hall camp houses around more than 50,000 people, including Syrians, Iraqis, and other nationals who fled the conflict. And McFarlane estimated around 600 babies were born there every year. Lieutenant Kamal Al Sawafi from the Michigan National Guard is one of the U.S. soldiers in Syria helping provide security for Iraqis leaving Al Hall to be repatriated back to Iraq in protected convoys. The son of Iraqi refugees who emigrated to the United States, al-Sawafi, said helping Iraqi refugees brings him joy and described watching people at al Hall cheering as Iraqis departed the camps for better lives back in Iraq. It's a good feeling, al-Sawafi said. McFarland said he believed there would come a time when U.S. partners in Syria could manage on their own but there is no publicly known target date to complete that transition. Sounds just like Afghanistan. Over time, I do envision us transitioning when the conditions are met, where our partners can independently have a sustainable capacity and capability to keep ISIS in check, he said. Donald Trump destroyed ISIS after Barack Obama and the CIA started ISIS. And now ISIS might regenerate under the fake president's regime. So Mark Milley says we need to keep people there to make sure that ISIS doesn't. And there's no idea how long that would take. But you can imagine that ISIS is blossoming once again under the fake president, which means we're going to have to stay there a whole lot longer. And hey, If we are in a proxy war there with Russia and Iran and Syria, and we're just not telling anybody, then ISIS might grow and it might expand that conflict. And of course, then we're going to have to expand our presence there in order to deal with ISIS. And that's what it's all about. Not that whole Russia, Iran, Syria thing. So don't worry, America. Woke Mark Milley has it all under control and continuing our tour around the world with events that definitely intersect this Russia versus the regime dynamic. This is from yesterday in human events. Georgians riot over law requiring organizations receiving foreign funding to register as foreign agents. And that sounds pretty familiar. Hey, what about all that? Hunter Biden. What about all that, Joe Biden? Let's see what's happening in Georgia. Keeping in mind that back in 2008, the hero of Ukraine, John McCain, was very, very upset about Russia's involvement in Georgia. On Tuesday night, residents of Georgia, a small ex-Soviet country in Eastern Europe, took to the streets throwing rocks and petrol bombs at police officers over Parliament's initial backing of a draft law requiring organizations to register as foreign agents if they receive overseas funding. In the capital city of Tbilisi, police used water cannons and tear gas to attempt to disperse thousands of protesters who clashed with officers armed with riot shields. At least three petrol bombs were thrown at officers, according to Reuters. And it's important to remember... When you're seeing protest movements and riots in other countries, it is not necessarily indicative of the people of those countries rising up against the regime. It is just as likely that it is a color revolution and an instigated uprising being led by the regime in order to destabilize the situation. You are being shown a picture of the people. You are not actually being shown the people, at least not necessarily. Those suffering from the effects of tear gas were treated on the steps of the parliament building. The law would require organizations receiving more than 20% of their funding from overseas to register as foreign agents or be issued fines. Earlier that day, the law passed in its first parliamentary reading. Opponents of the law say that it could harm the country's chances at receiving European Union membership. And that it resembles a 2012 Russian law that has been used to crack down on dissent in the country. And again, one of the human event sources here is Reuters. And we know how Reuters describes these color revolution events from the perspective of those leading the color revolution. Why would the protesters be out there protesting about a potential inability to join the European Union that no one, the people, care about and like. We are seeing the collapse of the European Union alongside the collapse of NATO right now. And it would be a great thing if countries all pass a law like that. If an organization receives more than 20% of its money from foreign entities, they have to register as a foreign agent. That would be a wonderful change that we should all welcome in the United States, so that that global regime money gets cut off from all these awful NGOs. Now, are there potential drawbacks there in terms of foreign investment in businesses? Maybe, but maybe we need to get past all of that because we've seen what foreign investments in our businesses eventually yields. It's profits up front for those with the businesses taking in the foreign investments, and it's compromise and corruption later on that actually subjects our country as a whole to the problems of globalism because the money doesn't come for free. And it's not just an investment, a passive investment where the money comes in, profits are made, and then the investor is paid back with a profit for investing. There's more going on here. There is always more going on. Georgian President Salome Zurabishvili said she was on the ride of the Georgians taking to the streets. I think that means the side of the Georgians taking to the streets, saying that she would veto the law if it reached her desk. You represent a free Georgia, a Georgia which sees its future in the West and won't let anyone take this future away, she said in a recorded address. That sounds very much like something the regime here would say, something like the regime would say just about anywhere. I could imagine Justin Trudeau saying that I could imagine Emmanuel Macron saying that I could not imagine Donald Trump saying that and saying that America sees its future in the West as part of NATO, as part of the European Union. Our future is to be allies with all these countries who've been ripping us off for decades while we defend their interests. She is pitching the global regime in those remarks, and she goes on. Nobody needs this law. Everyone who has voted for this law has violated the Constitution, she said. If vetoed by Zurobishvili, Parliament can override her veto. 30 year old protester Dmitry Shanshavili told Reuters I came here because I know that my country belongs to Europe, but my government doesn't understand it. We are here to protect our country because we don't want to be part of Russia again, he added. Some protesters carried Georgian, EU and U.S. flags, shouting no to the Russian law and you are Russian at politicians inside the legislature. Georgian Prime Minister Georgi Garabashvili expressed his support of the law, speaking from Berlin on Tuesday afternoon, saying it met European and global standards. So it sounds to me like the globalist Georgian president is vowing to keep Georgia in line with the global regime. And there is an organized and directed protest movement that is violent, trying to make sure that Georgia is not steered off its path in alliance with the global regime in Europe. This sounds like pure undiluted panic on the part of the globalist regime. And let's touch on one other story that directly intersects this Russia versus the global regime conflict. This is from Monday in the Washington Post. Belarus sentences exiled opposition leader to 15 years. A court in Belarus on Monday sentenced exiled opposition leader Svetlana Sikanuskia to 15 years in prison after a trial in absentia on charges including conspiring to overthrow the government, the latest move in a months-long effort by the Belarusian government to suppress dissent. Sikhanouskia ran against authoritarian President Alexander Lukashenko in August 2020 in an election that handed him his sixth term in office and was widely seen as rigged. She called her conviction and sentence an act of vengeance by Belarusian authorities and vowed to continue to fight for freedom. This is an exact parallel of what happened in Myanmar and Lukashenko in Belarus is one of Vladimir Putin's closest allies. And what about Sikanuskia? Is she one of the faces of democracy in Europe? Is she part of the global regime? Well, She met last year with Barack Obama in Copenhagen. This is what she said. We had a very warm chat. Barack said I need to meet with Michelle Obama and expressed his admiration for our work and all Belarusians. We spoke a lot about Belarus. I talked about Belarusian activists, journalists and the recent crackdown on trade union leaders and partisans. Needless to say, we discussed the war in Ukraine. We agreed that the current developments in Ukraine will decide the future of Ukraine and Belarus, as well as all of Europe. I was pleased that we managed to touch upon the programs for repressed youth and students. I asked Barack to emphasize Belarus within his Barack Obama foundational leaders program and invite young leaders for international workshops and internships. Such meetings fuel my confidence that Belarusians have many more friends than we tend to think. So that's who we're talking about. Pay attention to how the Washington Post describes her. Understand that all of this is through the filter of the global state propaganda media, the mouthpiece of the global regime. And immediately, this makes all the sense in the world. It is exactly what happened in Myanmar. It's what we've seen happen in Burkina Faso. They tried to steal an election, it didn't work. Now they're being held accountable. The same story. Slightly different details playing out all over the world, all the time, on different timelines, always. That is what we are looking at. That is what we are always looking at. And from the big picture perspective, it actually does matter that these things are happening. We don't see the accountability we want in America But it's amazing to see it happening in other countries because that means it can happen here. And this is the push. This is the momentum. It is going in that direction. The end is inevitable. That's why it only moves in one direction. And that's why all the panic. Back to the article. The results of the vote triggered the largest protest in the country's history. Lukashenko unleashed a brutal crackdown on demonstrators, accusing the opposition of plotting to overthrow the government, and Sikhanouskia left to Lithuania under pressure. Other key politicians and activists were either arrested or pressured to leave the country. Sikhanouskia and four other opposition figures were tried in their absence in the Belarusian capital, Minsk. Photos from the courtroom released by Belarus's state news agency, Belta, showed an empty defendant's cage. The charges against them also included creating and leading an extremist group, inciting hatred and harming national security. There you go. That's Barack Obama and Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton in the future. They're guilty of all these things. Sikhanouskia told the Associated Press in an interview that her court appointed lawyer hasn't been in touch with her once during the trial and has not responded to her request to review the case files. And Washington Post won't supply any reason behind that. So we're just going to have to accept that as true, I guess. She charged that the law and the justice system in Belarus no longer work. And the state, quote, has turned into one big KGB. The regime takes revenge on me and all Belarusians. It takes revenge for the fact that we chose freedom in 2020 for not resigning, not giving in, but continuing to fight. Sikhanouskia said, if Lukashenko could, he would have jailed everyone, she added. And that sounds about how Donald Trump is described by his political opponents. Always this unlawful authoritarian leader who's going to imprison his political opponents, even though he didn't do that at all in four years. And even though the illegitimate administration currently pretending to run this country does it all the time. UN spokesman Stefan Dujaric asked whether Secretary General Antonio Guterres had any reaction to Sikhanouskia's sentence, said... This is yet another example of the concern we've expressed of the shrinking space for civil society and for human rights activists in Belarus. Oh, it's always the activists. Poor, poor activists. As soon as you say the activists are being hurt, well, then you have all the moral authority on your side. You support activists. Well, you're the best guy in the world. In addition to the prison sentence, Sikhanouskia was ordered to pay a fine of about $11,000. Another exiled opposition politician, Pavel Latushka, was sentenced to 18 years in prison. Latushka, who once served as Belarus's minister of culture and then as ambassador in several European nations, was also barred for five years from holding public office. Maria Maroz, Volha Kavalkova, and Sirahe Dylevsky were handed 12-year sentences. All of them left Belarus after the protests erupted in August 2020. The demonstrations were the largest and most sustained since Lukashenko assumed office in 1994. He has run the country with an iron fist ever since. His government unleashed a brutal crackdown against the protesters, detaining more than 35,000 and beating thousands. And it's worth noting for the record that Belarus has opposed... George Soros's efforts in that country for decades now, it's important to remember that when you're hearing about how he's ruled with an iron fist for decades, that's from the perspective of the people who've been kicked out of that country. The country's most prominent human rights advocate and the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize laureate Alice Beliatsky was among those arrested. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison last week. And you're supposed to feel sympathy for him as a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. I mean, they don't just give those things out to anybody for doing nothing, even though they gave one to Barack Obama for getting elected president of the United States before he had done anything. These are basically like the Pulitzer Prize for whoever the globalists want to reward. Sikhanouskia ran against Lukashenko instead of her husband, popular opposition politician Sirahe Sikhanouski, who was arrested in the middle of his campaign in 2020 and has been sentenced to 18 years in prison. Last month, a court in Belarus added 18 more months to Sikhanouski's sentence over alleged violations of prison regulations. Sikhanouski maintained his innocence during the trial that was held behind closed doors, according to the Vyazna Human Rights Center. Belarus's most prominent rights group for two months. The politician was held in inhumane conditions in an isolation cell. The group said "Viasna has counted a total of 1,456 political prisoners in Belarus. Sikhanouskia said that the repression in Belarus is intensifying and every day 15 to 20 people in the country are being jailed, which shows how little confidence the regime has in itself. If Lukashenko thinks this jailing regime will stop me, will stop the Belarusians, it is mistaken. We will continue to fight for freedom all the more actively, she said. And I guess by fighting actively for justice, they mean escaping to other countries so that they can't actually be imprisoned for the things they actually were doing in league with the global regime, as we see in countries all around the world. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a system. And what we are watching is the system collapsing. Despite the frustrations produced by these limited hangouts and these narrative pauses, we are still marching forward to that endpoint. And that endpoint is inevitable here as it has been in other places. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'm your You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon. Out on the range.